Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Cobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Dr. Martin Angara, an assistant professor of finance in the University of Liechtenstein in Vaduz, where he teaches, among other courses, modules in financial technology and the basics of blockchain and researches cryptocurrencies and tokenization. And those are exactly the subjects we're going to talk about together today, especially in the context of what's happening in Liechtenstein itself following the passage of the blockchain law in January 2020. Martin, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Now, you've studied the performance of cryptocurrency exchanges to try and establish what they add in terms of liquidity and price discovery. What were your main findings? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we we really did a deep dive into crypto exchanges, one can say that. Uh, So what we did is we uh, gained and collected the data from the five biggest crypto exchanges, uh, real order book data, so deep order books. And what we did is we we ran different analysis on liquidity, but also on volatility and also on other known measures uh, such as uh, slippage, for example. Um, The findings are on the one hand, uh, not surprising. So uh, there is liquidity in in the big coins like Bitcoin or Ethereum, uh, maybe or even even Tether at the moment. But uh, if you go below the top 10, then liquidity gets uh, really low. Uh, too low, one must say, for an institutional investor, for example, to be really invested into such a coin. Uh, The problem as an institutional investor, as you have, for example, if you run a fund, uh, you run under under fund rules. So if your assets you hold, uh, maybe they they gain too much in value, so you have to get rid of it on the next rebalancing, then you must sell a big bunch of those coins on on one opportunity. even for a small or medium-sized fund, uh, they can't do that at the moment below the top 10 coins uh, without losing up to five or 6% on, on slippage. So that's, that's really pretty much. The other thing we looked into, because this is not a, a so much research topic, is how you uh, can invest into those uh, currencies using technical analysis. Uh, So like candlesticks, oscillators, having trading strategies with those. And what we find is very interesting, and I think this is good that we do it from an academic side. Uh, So on on the first first attempt, what we found were some some working strategies, to be honest. Uh, When when you run a deeper analysis on a longer time frame and, and doing other significance tests, what you see that basically all those significant uh, technical indicators, they go away. So it seems, and this is especially interesting in cryptocurrencies, that the technical analysis does not work at least well at the moment, which is on the other hand, a very good sign for a market, right? Because you would expect a working market uh, or a good working market to be less prone to technical analysis than another market, which is mainly driven by herding or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So therefore, this, these are, are very interesting results. And the other results we found is that uh, the crypto markets also surprisingly does not seem to be prone to 
seasonal effects. So we notice from, from traditional finance, you have stuff like Friday effects or January effects. And so we checked some of those effects too here at the university. We find on some time frame small evidence, but uh, in general, it seems to be rather efficient. So the good news is uh, obviously the, the market works very well in, in those ways. The, the bad news is there's still not enough liquidity in most coins to be uh, interesting for institutional investors. Now you, as you've just mentioned, illiquidity is a problem for, for funds in particular, but you've, you've not just been academic about this, you've actually been advising a, a, a cryptocurrency mm -hmm. investment fund, the Digital and Physical Gold Fund run by Incrementum. And uh, so when you started applying what you'd found out to, to the real world about liquidity, volatility, the technical side, and the lack of correlation with how security markets uh, uh, operate, um, did you learn some lessons you had not expected from the real world as opposed to your your study of the data? Well, what we did is um, just to, to, to summarize the fund in a nutshell, uh, what we did in this fund is we used some big crypto coins. Uh, we started with Bitcoin, but right now it's Bitcoin, Litecoin, uh, crypto, uh, Bitcoin Cash. And we are also looking into other mainly store of value coins. So the idea is to have store of value coins in there. They seem to be a little bit less volatile than, than the others, at least uh, when you look at the tail risk. So the tail risk is much lower for them. And what we saw is, to be honest, the, the, the first idea was to have a pure cryptocurrency fund. Uh, so they have a very diversified cryptocurrency fund and, and, and sell that. And what we easily saw is you can't get uh, the, the volatility under control with that. Uh, so if you want to sell it to, to clients, what you need to do is get the volatility under control. And we did that basically by establishing this uh, fundament of, of physical gold in the fund next to a little bit of cash, of course, what you always have, um, yeah, to, to get volatility down. So what we do there is we basically play, we look how is the volatility in the market and especially how is the volatility paid at the moment in the market. Uh, so we do this via auctions and, and other derivatives. And then it's basically decided on a daily basis if the, the, the volatility currently is okay to have a higher stake in crypto or if the volatility is too high, again, in ratio to how it is paid. So this is how we adapted basically to, to this knowledge. And we also found that when we built the fund, uh, it's a fund for qualified investors, I must say. Uh, so not retail at the moment. There, there is another fund running, which can also is a usage fund uh, where you can also invest. But this original fund is one for qualified investors. And what you see is you still have to explain, of course, to those investors what you're investing in. And the, the answer, well, we are just broadly investing into crypto does not sell. So you, you, you really have to, to explain for each coin, why is this interesting? Why are we uh, investing into this and not into this? And one of the uh, big reasons why we do not invest into some coins, for example, at the moment, uh, Bitcoin uh, Satoshi's vision is just because not enough liquidity on the market. That might change in the future, then we might uh, be able to also invest into that. 
but currently not. Yeah. Now, like most of us, you took an interest in cryptocurrencies initially during the ICO boom back in 2016-2018. What have we learnt from that boom, particularly about, about issuance techniques, which we think can be applied to tokenization more generally? What would you say are the big learnings from it? I think the biggest learning is uh, don't trust just the white paper. Also look at the smart contract, uh, obviously. Uh, but yeah, what have we learned? Uh, I think mainly from the technical side that we need something uh, or someone to, to check the smart contract if it's really doing what uh, this issuing company is saying it does. So if you want to invest into the company and you want to, to, to hold a share of it, for example, you have to make sure that the smart contract does not just take your Bitcoin or Ether or whatever you sent there and, and uh, someone goes on holiday with that. Uh, so this is something where I think a lot of investors very naively just send a lot of money to without really checking what's happening with that. And when you think historically, uh, obviously now, now one thinks, well, uh, yeah, those people are foolish. They just sent some money somewhere and didn't get something exchanged. Well, but, but think back five years more, uh, in the financial system, you, you basically had a lot of trust, right? So if you send something to a financial institution, uh, you would expect, at least in the developed world, you would expect that really that happens what it's supposed to happen. And so therefore, I think this is the biggest lesson we need to, to really have some auditing or certification or whatever on smart contracts, because this is something, checking those smart contracts is something traditional finance guys or can't do basically, because you need uh, an ID background to do that. Mm -hmm. and, and you need to be specialized to do that. And I think this is mainly the, the, the biggest takeaway on the smart contract. The second part of your question, what do we learn how to construct a token sale? Um, so, for example, from, from the standpoint of how to construct the auction mechanism, or do we want a hard cap or a soft cap or, or whatever? Um, we are doing intensive research on that. Uh, we are doing that on, on primary data. So what we do is we really pull all the smart contracts and the transactions from the Ethereum blockchain directly. So we don't just look into white papers. And what we see, and this is currently developed in the academic world, is some kind of a taxonomy of what you can do. Um, and what you can also see there is that we do not have something like a best practice or best in class approach at the moment. Uh, so. I can't give you the answer. You always have to use a hard cap because it just depends. And in the end, that's kind of the beauty on it, right? Uh, because the, this token system gives us a lot of flexibility. When you look back on, on IPOs, so, so stock issuance, uh, standard stock issuance, the, the amount of flexibility you have in there is rather limited. Uh, so therefore, I wouldn't say that that's a bad thing that you have a lot of different, uh, yeah, basically buttons you can press. Um, but what we need is some kind of a, a standardized environment in kind of a way. So to say something like, well, we have 
three or four options, hard cap, soft cap, uh, something like that. And you take one of those four. So this is something where the industry, I think, is currently getting slowly on a consensus on and is working towards. Now, before ICOs came along, we had crowdfunding. I think ICOs were sort of invented in 2013, maybe about that time. Mm -hmm. Now, do you draw a sharp distinction between ICOs and crowdfunding, or do you think they are ICOs are a kind of refinement of crowdfunding? And if, if they are different, are they converging into a single methodology? Well, there, there, there's many aspects to that. Uh, if I want to start from the technical side, uh, it's obviously very different because crowdfunding, uh, so when you go on, on any crowdfunding platform and you want to invest your money there, uh, and you do this via this investing period, uh, the crowdfunding platform is usually, at least in Europe, not, not allowed to hold the money directly. So what it needs is in the background, the bank, which does all the custodianship and everything. So it's, it's, it's deeply rooted into the traditional financial system. Uh, while ICOs basically have this idea of you don't need that, right? You, you do it via the, 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 the DLT technology, via blockchain, for example. So, so that's, that's one difference. The other difference I think is what it is basically in, uh, in practice used for. So ICOs have been used heavily to really fund uh, uh, startups on, on a basis of up to 80 or 90% of the equity of the startup. Uh, so, so it's a really funding mechanism. Of course, there's been a lot of marketing, but basically mainly to get your tokens sold. Crowdfunding, on the other hand, has evolved to be more of, uh, and I think that's a good thing, more kind of uh, marketing strategy. So when you look at most crowdfunding projects, what they do is they finance something like five to 10% of their equity with the crowdfunding. So you, you can be very sure that even without the crowdfunding campaign, the, the company would run. So I think that those are the differences at the moment. Are they running towards each other? Um, I don't think so. Uh, I think they will stay separate, although of course platforms run towards a system where they just offer both. Uh, so I think you could, you, maybe you can see it like crowdfunding as having a, a lower entrance burden uh, than, than an ICO where you very quickly also run into a regulation, of course, because when you, when you do crowdfunding, so you do real funding of your company, you are easily within a second, uh, an STO and no more an ICO. And obviously then you run into much more regulation than you could do with a crowdfunding where you just, uh, uh, at least in most of the European countries, you don't really get a share. You only get a cash flow, which looks like the cash flow from equity. Uh, so that's the big difference. So I see a, a possible future for both of them. I don't think they will merge. Well, talking of regulation, not every jurisdiction in Europe or anywhere else actually has um, laws and regulations in place. But actually, in Liechtenstein, you do. You've had this very broadly conceived, by which I mean you can tokenize anything, uh, mm -hmm. blockchain law in place for, for 18 months now. Um, what issuance activity have you seen taking place as a result of that law? Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, well, you have to uh, differentiate a little bit uh, issuing. So what the, what the blockchain law basically does it is, uh, and that's the beauty of it, 
it defines a lot of different services basically for which you can get licensed. For example, to be uh, uh, that you're allowed to emission token for others uh, or that you can uh, hold token for others. So you can be the custodian. And you can just pick your services. Of course, there are big players uh, in the country like, like Bank Freight, which basically offer all the services, but they're also very specialized uh, services. And um, so you could also do that. So blockchain law, for those who, who don't know, came uh, into place on the 1st of January of 2020. So it's now roughly 18 months. And for those who offered kind of these services before they had a, a um, I think a one-year period uh, in which they could adapt to this new regulation. So what we see is we have currently, uh, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, 11 or 12 players which are licensed uh, under the Financial Market Authority to offer those services. Uh, so we saw, we see that there, there are service providers in here and also some which came basically from the whole European Union because they are happy because they now uh, run on the, under regulation. Uh, sounds funny in finance because quite often uh, banks are not so, or financial institutions are not so happy about regulation, obviously, but you are happy if you have some regulation, right? So that you can be sure that what you do is under the law, basically, it does not change the next year. Mm -hmm. So we saw that. And building on that, we also saw uh, token emissions. Uh, so we had in uh, 2000, so from mid of 2019 till end of 2020, we had, I think, 14 or 15 uh, STOs, so real emissions, uh, which have been done. And of course, much more proposals and then, then some more in the pipeline. Uh, but we really had those STOs in the country and they did really well. So what we see is that the system works. Uh, of course, the numbers are not that big at the moment, but that was always uh, also one of the, the rules we follow in Liechtenstein here. So on the one hand, we were a front runner on the regulation. On the other hand, we are very cautious on uh, who to license and what, what uh, STOs to grant to, to really get into an emission. And I think that's that's a big bonus here. And we can do this in a small country because basically what you can do here is if you have a question, you can directly call financial market authority and you get an answer on the day. And if they don't have an answer, they sit together with you and they just help you together find an answer. And, and that's a very big plus which we can do here in a small country. And also, the, the, the big important players know each other. So for those who don't know, Liechtenstein has currently 37,000 citizens. Uh, so there's a big chance you'll meet at lunch <laughs> in the city center, just, uh, just by chance. Yeah. Now, of those, those 14 issuers you've described, mm -hmm. where, where do they come from? Do they come from inside Liechtenstein and, or do they come from outside the, the principality? Or, uh, and what sort, of in, what sort of sectors were they involved in what was their real business uh, one thing and and secondly the investors did the investors all come from Liechtenstein as well you've described how the local financial institutions have started to develop mix of, of services to offer to issuers mm -hmm. and, and, and to investors but so it has has the 14 issues been a purely domestic phenomenon in terms of issuers and investors or has it have these people come from all over the planet 
and the, the investors come from all over the planet and all sorts of uh, mm -hmm. sectors. I mean, it's a small sample, but I'd be interested to know what the composition of it is. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the service providers, uh, they are, of course, all domestic. They have to be. So if you haven't been, then you have to uh, build a company here to do that. And this has uh, this has been mainly uh, Liechtenstein and Swiss companies, to be honest. Um, those who use the services, so so those those SDOs, those uh, uh, token emissions, they are also a big part from from uh, Switzerland and Liechtenstein, but increasingly more from Europe. Uh, and there are also two or three global players coming here. Uh, so for for some time, we also had a uh, subsidiary of Binance here in the country, for example, uh, or we have Bitrex in the country. So we, we have big players here, which use the systems. Um, Liechtenstein has a very specific uh, situation, especially compared to Switzerland, because we are not part of the European Union, but we are part of the European economic area, which means, uh, uh, especially in the financial sector, what you can do usually is passporting. So uh, uh, when, you, when you offer a service here, it's the same like you would offer it in Germany, for example. You have the same right to sell it to the whole European Union uh, if it runs under European Union law, uh, which usually is the case. Currently, there is, um, yeah, you can, in, in this specific blockchain law sector, you can passport some services, some services only to some degree, and some not at the moment. Uh, so, for example, for funds, uh, you can uh, uh, set a fund up here, you can, uh, a crypto fund, uh, you can sell it to the whole European Union without any problem. Uh, but if you want to advertise it in another country, uh, then you have to get uh, permission of the authority in the country, which is usually not a big thing, but it's an additional step. Uh, this will change, of course, uh, also coming with Mika and harmonization of the law and everything. But, but those, those are the things we currently have. In terms of sector, one must say that the, the, the main and driving sector is still finance, uh, obviously. Uh, there, there are some proposals for, for other tokenizations, uh, especially services. Uh, but as far as I know, there is no token issued into that direction at, at the moment. But there are some in the pipeline, as far as I know. And the investors, they, they I wasn't quite clear whether you were saying they're coming from all over Europe or they're, they're clients of the private banks in Liechtenstein. Do you have any uh, They are, it's hard to say because one of the assets of Liechtenstein, of course, always has been some degree of uh, anonymity. Uh, well, so when you when you send your funds here, even if they are perfectly clean and white, it has nothing to do with that. Uh, so I think Liechtenstein is known to hold funds from all over the world, and of course those funds have to be invested, and therefore indirectly the investors come here. Mm -hmm. One one big advantage of Liechtenstein is that it's a, a financial powerhouse in terms of it's a one-stop place. So we have the banks here, we have the lawyers here, we have uh, custodians here. We have, basically, we have everything here except for a, a secondary market exchange. Uh, 
But except for that, you don't have to leave the country. You can get all the services within one country and basically within a 15 minutes car drive. So therefore, uh, this, this is a big asset, especially for, for high wealth individuals. And they, of course, also invest in here. But it's hard to say. So there's no statistics on where exactly they come from. Right. Um, I mean, so you raised the, the secondary market exchange. We'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, but the, the, there is this emerging consensus in, in, the, uh, in the tokenization industry, if you like, that, that the big opportunity lies in illiquid and privately managed assets, by which people generally mean real estate. They also mean collectibles and, and so on, but, but also particularly these privately managed assets, private equity, private debt. Now, one of the principal findings, as you've just pointed out to us, of your study of cryptocurrency exchanges was, was that uh, liquidity was a, was a problem. And we're kind of proceeding as though if we tokenized a bunch of buildings or a bunch of private debt placements or a bunch of private equity assets, they'll suddenly become liquid. Um, and I guess that's not really going to be the case. But do you, so, so as you look at this privately managed asset opportunity, do you see it as being the principal axis of growth for the security tokenization markets in particular, or do you think that the opportunity lies somewhere else? Mm. And do you see so, it happening for that matter? Yeah, you, know, yeah, yeah. you mentioned that mainly most of the issues are, are financial institutions or finance industry mm -hmm. uh, organizations. Mm. Um, maybe to the first part of your question or, or sentence in terms of liquidity, I think what you have to do is you have to differentiate between two types of liquidity. One is the, the, the classic uh, exchange liquidity. That is low. So the, the promise that you can buy, uh, I don't know, a real estate token, uh, even as a retail client, and you can sell it anytime without a big, big loss uh, in terms of liquidity, that has not been fulfilled at the moment, one must say. Uh, on the other hand, th there's a different type of liquidity. For example, if you're a big uh, institution or investor and you might hold uh, a a real estate, a bigger part of a real estate, and you want to sell that to someone else, uh, maybe another financial institution, then of course, it's easier to do that via, via a token uh, still. So you, do, you, you don't need an exchange to have liquidity for that. Uh, it's still more liquid because it's still, you, you can sell it basically within some seconds, right? Uh, today, you would have to do a lot of paperwork to, to sell real estate to someone else. So there is increased liquidity there, just to differentiate that a little bit. Mm, what is the, the, the big promise of tokenization? Is it just um, illiquid and privately managed assets? Uh, I think it's, it's one big promise. And I think uh, the question here is always, uh, uh, when we change to a new system, what you need is some improvement, right? Mm -hmm. So one could a little bit provocatively say today, uh, if I want to sell a stock, I can do that via my smartphone basically within seconds, right? So what's for, for the end user, what's the big jump to, to a blockchain? Uh, or in the end, not that big, maybe the fees. But when you look at fees currently on blockchains, that's another topic of scalability. Uh, so. The, 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 the perceived jump is not that big there. But of course, in private assets and those assets which have not been liquid at the moment, there the improvement is vast. The, the improvement is really big there. So I think those will be the first ones which really have a big boom of tokenization. 
And I think other assets might follow, uh, but, but not that quick. I mean, it's, it's uh, obviously technically, it's easier to just use a random stock, tokenize it, and then trade it on, on, a, on an exchange. But the advantage is very small to that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, settlement is quicker and it's cheaper. And, and I, I see all that, of course. But in the end, the advantage is not that big compared to those private and illiquid assets. So yes, I would agree that we would see the, the, the biggest growth there. And when you have the systems running and we might have uh, uh, liquid secondary markets, then the other assets might just follow. Maybe one last sentence about the, 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 the exchanges. What is interesting is uh, two years ago, I've been asked at the conference, uh, what do we need in, in, the, in the system? And there I said, we need secondary markets, uh, trusted technology. Now we are one step further, we have secondary markets. They're running pretty well. We know there's stuff like wash trading, and, uh, but, but we, can, we can get hold of that. Um, now we are one step further, we have the technology, now we just need uh, more liquid assets. So you are saying that if, uh, if Liechtenstein built through private or, or public interest a, a tokenization exchange, if you like, a public secondary market, that would encourage tokenization to accelerate, it would grow, the market would grow more quickly, is that what you're saying? Uh, I wouldn't bind it to Liechtenstein, basically. Uh, what, what I would say is we currently see, uh, I lost count, one year ago, I think it was 2,000 licensed and unlicensed crypto exchanges all over the world. Uh, so what we would need is, and I know this is a, a bad word in the area, but we, what we need is a little bit more centralization. Uh, so, 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 so why do, why do uh, uh, stocks of big companies trade well? Because they, they trade basically at one or two trading places at the world, right? Uh, so if you want to trade the stock of a specific company, you know where to go. Uh, and they trade a lot of stocks from other companies. So I think it would be a big leap forward if we could find those two free exchanges, which run basically 95% of the crypto business, and then we would have more liquidity on, on the assets, basically. So currently it's, it's so decentralized in terms of trading volume uh, that, that, that only very few of those exchanges are even interesting for institutional investors to, to trade there. So I think this is something we would need uh, yeah, to, to have some winners in the game. And, and do, you, do you think that the technology itself ultimately provides an alternative to that centralization? In other words, can you achieve a kind of virtual, you know, smaller number of exchanges? Of, let's say you get your three or four global token exchanges. Can they be built um, on a, in a distributed way, if you like, with, with investors meeting issuers through technology rather than going to a, a centralized exchange controlled by a, a particular group? Is technology an alternative to centralization of liquidity? I would uh, uh, agree 100%. Uh, that's why I said I don't think it needs to be in Liechtenstein or someone else. Basically, it doesn't matter where it is. Uh, you can connect easily wire. If you do it via blockchain, it's very easy. If you do it via different technology, it's also easy. But what we need to do is we 
we need to agree on three to four virtual marketplaces where we do our business, basically. Right. Uh, that, that's the thing. And we can do this via technology, of course. But what else do you need to make a market to, in tokens very successful? You know, if you look at the conventional securities market, you have investment banks who, who can design and, and structure the issues. You have brokers to act as a point of connection with investors. Sometimes after a, a stock is listed, you, you know, you have market makers to make a market in it, or you have lead brokers who agree to step in and, mm -hmm. and make a price if nobody else will. So what else do we need to make those token markets successful? Assuming we get these three or four mm -hmm. um, global, let's call them trading platforms. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think in the end, what you could easily do is uh, you can look back how financial markets worked over the last 20, 30 years. I mean, there's a reason how we arrived at this exchange system, which is not that bad in the end. You can think of, of uh, financial crisis and everything uh, how you like, but the, the system itself was, was rather stable in terms of the, the, the exchanges. Uh, so what we would need is, uh, yeah, market makers. I think that's a very big topic. Uh, that's also interesting uh, on, on developments here on uh, decentralized exchanges like on Uniswap, which run uh, automated market makers. So they're doing first things there. I think that's one thing we could really automate. Uh, I think custodianship is something which needs to be done. Uh, so someone who uh, holds the assets on the one hand for, for the end user, the client of financial institutions, so classic custodianship is something we need. And mm -hmm. what we would also need is some kind of a, a, a central security deposit. Uh, I think we need that, but I also think that can be solved by technology. Uh, so we don't need a company to do that for us. Uh, I think what we do not need anymore is so many trading uh, intermediaries. Uh, so I think some of them uh, will leave the chain uh and maybe one or two remain and what what tasks they would exactly pick up is easy uh, not easy to say today uh because like i said for example market maker what they do currently is very promising but what we also see when you when you look deeper into them they run very well on 98 percent of the distribution but when something like really terrible happens on the market like like big big crashes or big jumps, uh, then those algorithms have huge problems, obviously. So this is where you would expect to someone with, with a human brain to step in and, and, and do something. Custodianship and central deposit is the main things we need. Next to, of course, uh, a blockchain system which uh, does the transaction for us. Now, now Martin, we, we lost you there for a moment. So perhaps we, yeah. we could just repeat that. I'll ask you a different question and you can, we'll edit this piece out. But um, you brought up the, the question of, of post-trade services and custody has emerged as, as being pretty important to mm -hmm. uh, success of tokenization because these private keys clearly need to be looked after by somebody and they're very unusual assets and mm -hmm. institutional money in particular would like that. So uh, custodian banks, if you like, seem to have a future definitely inside this new industry. 
central securities depositories, central counterparty clearinghouses, do you think they have a role to play as well? So I think central uh, depositories, yes, uh, but I think we can solve this via technology uh, in the end. Uh, so this is something st storing the, uh, that, that's easy. The, the counterparty, I think we, this, this we won't need anymore. But, uh, so I see this very easily done by, by a blockchain basically. Uh, so th th that's, I think not, not so depository, yes, but the counterparty, no. Uh, custodianship, I think that's, that's a big field in the future. Uh, because in the end, what you want also in financial markets is convenience. Uh, so if you are a retail client, you, in the end, I think it's naive to think that people will hold their private keys at home, uh, at least not the majority of them. It's nice that you have the option to do that. It's nice that you can, if you want to, if you don't want to trust a bank, for example, as a custodian. But in the end, uh, I think it's naive to think that 100% of the population have the, the abilities to do that. Uh, so therefore, custodianship for retail, but also for institutional investors, that's a thing. They don't want to have that risk. They didn't want to have the risk in the past. That's why they had custodian banks. Uh, they also don't want to have the risk in the future. And it makes sense, right? Because when you uh, uh, take the, the, the long path and stony path to have a good cold storage, uh, then it's of course easy to expand this to, to offer this to a lot of clients. So again, I think it's, it's not bad to have less but more secure uh, custodians. And I think this is what's a, a service which will be done for by, by corporations and which will not be embedded into uh, in, a, in a system, I would say, yeah, a transaction system. Yeah, but one of the things that custodian banks do, and to a lesser extent CSDs do, is of course asset servicing, and they collect the, the dividends and the interest mm -hmm. payments, and they vote the stock, and they do the tax reclaims, and so on. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned earlier in our conversation smart contracts, and often the answer to that question about asset servicing is we don't need that function because it will all be done by by smart contracts. So, can we leave it to smart contracts, or do we need CSDs and custodian banks to do the asset servicing? Oh, that's a that's a, a, a really tough question uh, because technology at the moment does not give a clear answer if we are, will be able to to run that on a secure smart contract basis. Uh, so especially when it comes to, to to voting rights or stuff like that. So there is a reason why most of also in Liechtenstein most of the uh, stock or share-like security tokens, which are uh, sold, they are basically stripped of the voting right uh, to, to not run into those problems. Uh, so to be honest here, uh, I wouldn't dare to guess <laughs> if we arrive here or there, uh, but I think that, that holding the, the tokens and maybe also holding the rights coming with the tokens uh, is something where there is business for current financial institutions in the future, at least in the foreseeable time over the next years. So I don't see even a beta working version of, of, of technology which does that reliably.
Perhaps I can ask you that question in a slightly different format. You yourself have, have in the course of this conversation, suggested yeah. that smart contracts do have these potential vulnerabilities in the code, and we've seen instances of that. We now also see that they, they can be open to manipulation, um, particularly in, in, stressed, in stressed markets. So are we looking just at a, um, a, a new technology which needs to be refined? In other words, developers need to do more work on this uh, to make it more secure and um, more stable? Or do you think there's a fundamental technological, well, is there a problem here that technology cannot solve? Or are we just waiting for it to be solved by technology? I'm convinced that uh, the smart contracts are, are here to stay. Uh, I think that most of those problems can be solved and those who can't be solved will be dealt with in another way, I guess. Uh, but what we, what we will see, and I'm very convinced of that, is we will have some kinds of, 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 of a licensed or quality signal for smart contracts. So like, like we do auditing today for, for different financial uh, transactions or different financial ideas, uh, what we will see is also for smart contracts, I don't know, one of the big auditing companies, some of them are looking into it, by the way. Uh, so when, when you run an STO and you want to use a smart contract, you will have to have a, a stamp by a big auditor, uh, which says basically, well, this smart contract is secure. And maybe uh, uh, is even then uh, insured against something really happening. Right? Uh, so there might be insurance, uh, insurances offering services if there really is a code, but to the best, uh, to the best of all means, it was checked before. So why not offer an insurance product on that? Mm -hmm. uh, for, for investors. So I, I think we will have just a, a standard chain of quality check on those smart contracts. And this is what, what's happening. And there are already, uh, I, I know several companies out there which are working towards that, uh, auditing smart contracts and uh, yeah, creating some kind of a quality stamp or signal or, or license or whatever you want to call it. And, and do you see something similar, that, that quality assurance, that um, certification, that stamp of, of quality happening on the custody side as well? Because we've seen custody of private keys evolve through various stages. You began by just cold storage, stick it on this USB and put it in your fridge or in your safe. And then we uh, moved through these dongles and, and the multi-sig. We're now the leading method of safekeeping appears to be multi-party mm -hmm. computation. Is this another area in which there's a, just a, um, to borrow from Alison Wonderland, it's a, it's a red queen race in which you're constantly standing, you know, accelerating to stay still really, because the hackers are always after what your, whatever the state of your technology is. Or do you think there is a final state here where we'll say, well, that's how we're going to safe keep um, tokens? Uh, I'm pretty convinced that we will, we can have a very, very 99.999% uh, system, which is technically safe, but what will never be safe is basically the, the human application. Uh, and I'm also, when I, when I teach my students here, I always tell them you, you have to differentiate between uh, a stolen crypto from uh, an exchange or, or really like from a, from a hacked wallet uh, from crypto, which was stolen because people left their key as a screenshot on the iPhone or something like that. Uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, because that's obviously human error then. So I guess human error is something we just uh, we can't make it foolproof enough. Uh, we couldn't in the past. That's why banks do custodianship. Uh, and uh, again, I'm convinced that this is a part uh, uh, which will stay at financial institutions. They will offer the services and people will be happy to take the offer. And, and to be honest, why not, right? You pay a small fee relatively for uh, keeping your assets very safe. So that's, that's a deal I would suggest people who are not really deeply rooted into the technology and which are fine to have all their assets on one dongle, which they know they are not allowed to, to lose or throw into the sea or whatever. Um, so therefore I, I believe, yes, technically uh, I think we, we will get there. But in the end, at least in the, in the retail sector, we will, we will have custodian banks. Uh, I can't see it in any other way. Now, one of the things that custodian banks do is they do the know your client, the anti-money laundering, the sanction screening, the countering the financing of terrorism uh, checks. Now that's become a very expensive business for banks everywhere, including in, in, in Liechtenstein. Uh, the solution has been advanced, not just by we're very enthusiastic about this at Future of Finance, but it's been put forward, you know, even by the Financial Action Task Force, which lays down rules in this or recommendations in this in this area, that a solution to this is is digital identities. Do you see them as a solution to the to the cost of KYC AML? And do you detect enthusiasm for adopting digital identities in Liechtenstein itself? Uh, Yes, 100%. So I, I, I'm very sure that we will have digital identities on a central, maybe state-owned blockchain in the foreseeable future, uh, because it basically makes sense. Uh, just one, one easy example is when you, I don't know, when you go into a supermarket and uh, you buy a bottle of beer there, usually what, what the cashier, at least when you are about the age, should have to check is, is that you're old enough, right? What you do today is you have to show your ID card. On the ID card, there's so much stuff on there, which is basically of no interest to that. This cashier doesn't need to know who you are, uh, what, what's your name, how old you are exactly, basically just that it's you, a picture, and that you are over 18, at least here. Um, and taking this logic to, to all other sectors, where you can just say, well, I have a lot of information there, but I only grant you the information you need to know is a big field. And uh, I can see that uh, Liechtenstein has introduced uh, uh, not blockchain, but the uh, electronic identity, uh, I think roughly one year ago, uh, people are adopting into that. Uh, I, I'm also, I'm from Austria, so also in Austria, we, uh, we are very much advancing into that. Uh, so Austria is planning to, to have uh, digital uh, driving licenses and everything on the phone at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so which just basically you can download via the cloud and you can show to the police officer, hey, I have a driving license. So, um, it, and it only stays on your phone for, for I think a minute or so. Uh, so it's really a current thing. Mm-hmm. So, and, and when we come back to finance now, uh, we can see we have a, a very promising uh, company here in Liechtenstein, which offers this already for, for huge funds. They have a primary emission platform. Uh, and what they do is they run people through this AML, KYC, and so on. 
and they have a client with a specific profile. And when you do an emission there, uh, so they allow emissions from standard stocks to, to any kind of tokens, so all financial instruments, crowdfunding projects. Uh, so they do the filtering. So when you are, you run through the KYC and then you have, I don't know, you're a qualified investor or you're not a qualified investor or whatever, you're institutional investors, then you can only see the product you are allowed to invest into. Um, so they do the filtering for you. So this uh, EID is something which I think is, it will come rapidly, uh, especially because also uh, states have an interest in doing that. And then you could also easily link this e-identity to other important uh, uh, databases. For example, in uh, Austria, also in Liechtenstein, when you own land, there is something like which we call it the, the ground book, which basically says who owns which part of the land. And there you can see the clear name. Uh, which is basically of no interest to someone else. Uh, uh, although, I don't know, you want to report a crime or so. Uh, and if, if this would be just locked to, to another blockchain with a key, uh, that, that would work wonderfully. So therefore, I think e-identity is one of the, the, the big promising blockchain topics in the foreseeable future. Interesting. And, and just to be clear, you would envisage the individual or in some cases the company controlling that data they might not own all of it but they would certainly control who gets to see it uh, therefore therefore i think that those identities would be something which must be uh, uh, centrally controlled for example by the state uh, so i wouldn't give that into the hand of one company uh, so therefore and if you trust the state uh, so, but, but uh, at least in developed world, I would trust the state a little bit more than a single company, to be honest. Uh -huh. um, so therefore, and then you just give, uh, you, can, you can easily solve that critically to just give access to part of the information. So again, when I invest money, all I have to, to do is basically identify myself as a person and maybe identify myself as the state of, uh, status of investor I am. That's the only information I have to drag from the, from this blockchain. I asked you that question because one of the, the promises of, of blockchain tokenization is, is this democratization. So if you can envisage a world in which you and I as individuals are able to control our own data, we can then show that data to anybody we need to, to transact with, whether it's the government or a private company, whether we're buying goods and services or obtaining a driving license, which you've you've described and so it kind of changes the nature of of capitalism as a whole because it puts consumers uh in a powerful position relative to suppliers of goods and services and indeed relative to the to the government as as well is that a is that a vision which you share mm, yes to, to some degree yes uh i thought a lot about that and to be honest it's it's very hard to see where we might end up. Therefore, I'm a little bit cautious with, with giving the answer here, what, what I expect to see. Uh, but at least what I can see is uh, we will have a lot of empowerment of the single individual because of that. Uh, so I can I can totally agree to that. Now, I, I want to ask you about your, your views on DeFi in a minute, but just before I do, on, on this question of 
of data and democratization. There is a technical feature of tokenization, which is often advanced as being important to democratizing investment, and that's mm -hmm. fractionalization. Mm -hmm. Are we are we right to think that the that, that will be the outcome of fractionalization? It, it opens up owning buildings or fine art or collectibles or indeed debt and equity to to wider groups of people. That, that's the benefit of it. Are there are there costs to it as well? Is there a downside to, to fractionalization? Have its benefits been exaggerated? Um, so the, the benefits are, are surely there. Uh, again, in Liechtenstein, we have one company which did an uh, STO and they did ex uh, successfully what you just said. They, uh, they buy buildings, they tokenize them and you hold the token so you hold one part of a building and then you can decide if you want to uh, to get a dividend, uh, that's another token, or if you just want to stay invested and then build up your wealth, uh, which is interesting because it gives you a whole new investment opportunity. Uh, so you could invest into real estate even with a small amount of money. So if you don't have the money to buy the whole house, you could still buy part of a house. So uh, I guess uh, first to answer the question, benefits are really there, especially when we look on a global scale, uh, for example, uh, the Amazon stock, as far as I know, is something above $2,000. Uh, so if you are in a, in, a, in a low salary part of the world, if you want to invest into Amazon, that's a big burden, right? Uh, so therefore, I see uh, their big advantages. One disadvantage I can see in the future is that uh, I think it will be very hard to establish we come back to that liquidity for those assets. Uh, so I think the promise that you can buy them and you can also easily sell them, I think that that, that promise remains to be fulfilled. Uh, that's the one thing. And the other thing is that it becomes very uh, chaotic and hard to, to see. Uh, so currently, you know, that there is, I don't know, to, to say one example, that there is one Amazon stock want to invest into Amazon, buy the stock or don't buy it, but that's the way how to invest into it. Uh, if you have different fractions of a stock, uh, if there's just one, if it's just a uh, fractionalized down to, I don't know, a thousand of it, then it's easy. Uh, but if you start to fractionalize buildings in, in different ways and you can hold a, a part of it, but you don't know if you just hold the equity or if you also hold the voting right, or if you also hold the, some utility that you're allowed to live in there. Uh, so of course you can solve this for every individual case, but for an investor, it's very hard to see from the beginning uh, what I'm investing into. And as an investor, you, you don't have the time to really read through, I don't know, 20 pages for each token uh, to see what this fraction really gives you or not. So this remains to be seen if those those uh, problems I can see there uh, can be overcome uh, and, and then it might be a big benefit. And another, another aspect to that, a more financial aspect to that is uh, when you look into the stock split literature. So, so we had kind of fractionalizing already in the past. Uh, when you have big stocks and it's just split into different parts. Uh, what you can see is that on, on stocks with, uh, the, which cost less money, especially those which cost very little money, like the penny stocks, uh, 
you can see very different trading behavior there than on the big stocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what, what, what you have there is kind of a lottery ticket, right? So you pay less, uh, you might be willing to go into more risk because the upside potential is much higher than the downside potential. Because when you go from 90 cents down, uh, you can't go far. Uh, so therefore, th- this is something which is currently under investigation also in academia. Uh, what would happen if we just would split those investments into very small, tiny parts? Because that's the promise of fractionalizing. Uh, to, to, to have prices like $1 per token or so, uh, or maybe $10. What happens then with trading uh, is something which remains to be seen. So we have no answer to that yet. Now, talking of, of penny stocks, just a, a, perhaps a final question for you. Um, in penny stocks, we've seen considerable amounts of, of fraud and uh, pump and dump and, and so on going on. Is what is going on in the decentralized finance, the DeFi market, in your opinion, a, a bubble which must at some point collapse? Uh, is my, my first question. My second question is, do you have enough data about what's going on in the DeFi markets to, to make a judgment about that? And if you haven't got enough data, what do regulators need to do to make that data available so that people like you can analyze what's going on in the market and understand it and, and help us understand? what's happening there's a lot packed into that question but i'd be very interested in your views on those those three points uh i would start from the last question if i may uh do we have data to say something um theoretically yes uh but but we have no assessment on how good the data is uh so when we go for example to the biggest decentralized exchange which is uh, uniswap arguably by a large margin uh, so what they do is they provide data uh, on, on, uh, on, on the exchange, but we do not know how good that data is or how true that data is. It might be 100% true. I'm not saying that, that they cheat, but we just don't know. I mean, we, we know from the past, from, from other exchanges, uh, that they obviously manipulated a lot of the data they, they have given out. Uh, so you can show that indirectly that, uh, that, that uh, for example, bid-ask spreads and slippage just uh, on, on average do not work together with the trading volume they had. Uh, so so you, can't, you can't show that obviously on, on, on single occurrences, but you can sh- show from the data that quite often it, the, the numbers just don't add up. Let's call it like that. Uh, so from decentralized, uh, from decentralized uh, apps, we, we even know less how good the data is. We um, and the, the data is kind of there, but it's very new. I mean, when we look at decentralized finance, which was basically uh, financially non-existent as of, let's say, April 2020, uh, I think they were below revenue of 100 million, the whole sector, something like that. And, and now they, they are close to a billion of revenue at the moment. So uh, a sharp increase, still not much, but sharp increase, arguably. Um, so is this a bubble, yes or no? I, I wouldn't call it a bubble because a bubble is something where, where a lot of money goes to and which bursts at some point. Uh, I, I would call it 
at the moment, although I think it's very interesting, uh, I would call it a big risk. Uh, because the, the basically the promise of decentralized finance is we will do it without central, central institutions. Uh, we don't need states, we don't need any other central institutions. And I think this is kind of a naive approach to think that you could overthrow the system as a whole. Uh, that, uh, if it would be good or not, uh, I leave to, to everyone's uh, own opinion, but uh, I think you, you, you won't be able to, to overcome all the states. Uh, when you look, for example, China, obviously at the moment is able, although it's the third attempt, but they are somehow able to really hurt Bitcoin at the moment. Uh, they already tried two times, didn't succeed there, but now they can. Uh, and, and also other states, when you, you just say, well, it's not allowed to make business without KYC and AML, then decentralized finance might have a problem already. So I would not invest my money into it, although I think that they are very interesting ideas. And who knows, maybe something interesting grows out of the sector. Uh, and I'm following it very, very uh, closely, and I'm very interested into that. But currently, I see huge problems up the road. Yeah. And are you planning a, a research study into, into DeFi with some of your, your colleagues or PhD students? Um, we are we are currently developing the, the topic a little bit because we are thinking about well, we, what we offer at the university is a certificate program in blockchain and fintech uh, at the moment, and we are planning to run another certificate program which goes uh, deeper, even more deeper into the financial part. And there we want to uh, also have a big module of three to four days on decentralized finance. So that's how we currently rolling up the information. Basically, we, we uh, look at it from a teaching site and we are, we are looking for research ideas there. But currently, although there's data there, it's, it's hard to find one, to be honest. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not because there aren't any, but because it's, it's not obvious one thing, like for example, liquidity on crypto markets, that's an easy, easy. Uh, easy decision, but in decentralized finance, it's it's difficult. Currently, we are more on a more on a path to try to understand more what is different to to traditional markets. Right, you need to find something you can actually measure and, and draw yeah. conclusions from, I guess. But which exactly. which reminds me, just just you didn't answer you didn't answer my final question about DeFi, which is should okay. governments should regulators be doing something about it to either bring that market within the scope of of, of regulated activity, or at least make make better data available about mm -hmm. it. Clearly, as you said, it's it set itself against um, mm -hmm. state involvement. But uh, if interesting things are happening there, should governments seek to encourage those by making the environment a little more reliable, a little more certain? Um, I, I would agree that in terms of transparency, uh, uh, the, the whole data should be just publicly available. Uh, and basically what I think is that D DeFi should have on its own the motivation to do that, to just show, hey, what we are, what we are doing here uh, uh, has a foundation, is right. Uh, we are doing things differently, but we are doing things in the right way. 
And we can prove this with the data. Look at it, check us basically. Uh, following your comment, yes, I would uh, also ask governments to, to just uh, enforce this transparency uh, and say, if you want to run a business in our state, or if you want to, then you just have to provide the data to show that, that you're doing the right things, uh, at least to the state. Publicly would be better, but at least to someone. Uh, otherwise, I see the role of, of, of governments mainly in uh, enforcing the law. So as long as there is no sign of uh, a lot of criminal activity, uh, I don't know why they should uh, interrupt the business. Uh, leave it there, see it as a startup, kind of, and, and, and let them work. But when they see uh, regulatory or uh, legal problems, then of course they have to enforce the law. That, that's my opinion on that. So I, I would I would let DeFi. I mean DeFi is very young. Just let them work for two or three more years. I think that would be important. Martin Angara, thank you so much for sharing with us uh, everything that you've learned. Uh, it's going to make a fascinating. Uh, topic of discussion among our members. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.